Welcome back, brothers and sisters. Today, we're going to take a look at uh, Seed Wars number 24. And uh, before we really get into it, I want to review the Proto-Evangelium because we're going to be using that as the context by which we evaluate the two seed lines in the Old Testament. And if you're new to the channel, then you may not be familiar with one of my theories or, or a premise, and that is that something very unusual took place in the garden. I think any person, even a lay person, knows that that is a mysterious account, the Garden of Eden and this forbidden fruit that was consumed. And whatever that forbidden fruit was, it obviously tainted the genetics of mankind because after that, man was programmed now to sin and his body was programmed to die. So the law of sin and death came in and it came in genetically, which I think is really interesting when you look at the fact that the word Genesis has the word root, uh, the root word gene built within the word, and it really means the beginning of the genes or the genetics of the Adamic race. So, you know, now that we have a better understanding of DNA, we can start looking at the scripture through biblical genetics. That's something that man couldn't do, say, 200 years ago or before. <clears throat> now, the one thing that I want to clarify to the listeners is, and I've said this in past videos, I wasn't there. I was not in the garden. And I don't know anybody who was in the garden. And so we're doing our best to try and piece things together. I can't verify with 100% authenticity that something sexual happened in the garden. And I've got some brothers and sisters out there who are, um, have really been put off by this teaching. And, you know, my only recommendation is that you study it for yourself and you take it to the Lord and you allow the Holy Spirit to bring you to a conviction of what you think. And, and that's it, right? Um, I can't prove with a shadow of a doubt these things. I've tried to build an argument for why it may be that the tree of knowledge involved sexual knowledge. Um, we don't hear a lot of the Christian world or the church's speak much about the Proto-Evangelium, we know that the very next verse after the fall in the garden, the very next verse is this Genesis 3.15 where it says, and I'm reading here off the screen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and you shall bruise her head and you shall bruise his heel. Or excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we have to put it in context here. This verse is coming directly and immediately as a result of eating the forbidden fruit. Whatever happened in the garden, now the very next verse is a result of that, and that's God 
prophetically disclaiming that there's going to be two seed lines going forward. This is before any human beings have ever been born. Cain and Abel don't exist. There's just Adam and Eve. And, and so we're told here that guess what? There's a war coming, enmity, and that's going to be between two seed lines. And that word seed is Zerah, and it means semen. Um, it means, you know, that which produces future generations and posterity. So it is a bloodline. And, you know, I've tried to articulate in the past that perhaps we're dealing with the seed of the serpent right from the very beginning. And we see that with Cain and Abel. Abel appears to be a righteous man. Cain appears to be an unrighteous man. And when you look at some of the studies around Cain, he's always spoken of in a negative connotation. He's always spoken of as being the wicked one. Even in the New Testament, it refers to Cain as being of his father, the devil. Whether that's a spiritual metaphor or a literal metaphor is, is still the great debate. But... You know, when you put that in context of people like Josephus, who said that Cain and all of his posterity were ex more exceedingly wicked than the previous one, and that they are the ones who started all of the robbing and looting and murdering and raping of the earth, it becomes clear that it wasn't just Cain that was evil, but his son was evil, and his grandson was evil, and his great-grandson was evil, and his great-great-great-grandsons. They were all evil, the entire seed line. And so, if that's true, then it stands the reason that they are the seed of the serpent. Because we know that there's only, you know, two seed lines. The Proto-Evangelium doesn't say there's going to be three seed lines or four seed lines. There's just two, one from God, one from the devil. And so it would stand to reason that the Kenites belong to that other seed line. And perhaps this is why we see in the secret societies and the Masonic Babylonian mystery religions that they venerate and adore Cain and Tubal Cain, even to the point of having rituals based around them handshakes, um, symbols on their person, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there was something else going on with Cain and his posterity uh, than there was with Abel and, his, and Seth and their posterity. And so that's where this theory comes from, that something sexual happened in the garden, that the fallen angel, Lucifer, found a way to subdue and take advantage of Eve, and this propagated these seed lines. Now, that's a very difficult thing to prove with 100% accuracy. A lot of people are greatly put off by that, and if that's the case, then you know what? Fine. That's okay. You're, you're entitled to your opinion. You know, most people, most of us can at least agree upon the Genesis 6 conspiracy that minimum we know the fallen angels came down and took the daughters of men in Genesis 6 and they slept with them and they made the hybrids 
Maybe that's the beginning of the seed of the serpent. Maybe it didn't happen in Genesis 3. Maybe the source is Genesis 6. And that's something for each of you to study, to take to the Lord in prayer, and to come to your own conclusion. You know, I don't think that this is a, a major salvation issue. Whether you think the hybridization began back in the garden, or whether you think the hybridization began back in Genesis 6, right before the flood, and that's what triggered the flood, ultimately is, is a fairly moot point to me at, at this point at this point in, in this series. What is important is to understand that at some point in Genesis, we're going to see two groups, and those groups are going to be at enmity with each other. That word means strife and hostility. They don't like each other. They're not going to get along like peanut butter and jelly. They are water and oil. They separate, and they're not meant to be together. Now, unfortunately, what we see happen throughout the scripture is that eventually the two seed lines do mix. And, you know, the nation of Israel, who's the seed of the woman, time and time again, they mix with the seed of the serpent genetically. And we see all kinds of distortions of this going forward. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is can we really trace the lineage of these different people groups in the Old Testament? And can we discern whether they're part of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? And if so, how will that give us better understanding of, uh, of the scripture in general? So we'll get started here with the Proto-Evangelium. We know that this is the, the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. When God looks at the three of them, the, the serpent, the Nakash, and, um, and remember, the Nakash, the noun form is a serpent or a serpentine being, and the verb form of the word is one who's a mesmerizer or an enchanter, one who um, uses witchcraft and sorcery to put you in a spell, a diviner. And in my opinion, when you really closely deconstruct those words and look at the etymology of those words, it strongly suggests the use of mind-altering properties, you know, drugs and roots and herbs and things to put someone in a enchantment or a spell. And so I've, I've described in the, in the past Seed Wars how just maybe the um, enemy used the mandragora plant, which is really called the mandragon plant. And ancient legends say that it was used by these reptilian beings to subdue humans and, and put them under a spell to so they could control them and also have sex with them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they refer to the fruit of this tree, the mandragon tree, as the love apple or the devil's apple. And so... To me, that is very interesting and, and very suspicious. But the one thing that we want to look at is, you know, what exactly does the prophecy mean? And essentially what it means is this. Satan, the Nakash, the reptilian being in the garden, 
is now learning that Adam and Eve are going to have offspring and that one of those offspring are going to eventually crush his head. He now has that knowledge. And the reverse is true too. Adam and Eve also, even though they've just made the biggest blunder in the world, they've disobeyed God and his only commandment. And they've moved from dependence on God into independence away from God. And they're now being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Even though all that's transpired, they also understand that, hey, at least there is hope for the future because one of our children are going to redeem us one day by crushing the serpent's head. So both sides, the, enemy, the devil and Adam and Eve have this same understanding. So now how do they respond to this prophecy? Obviously we see Satan go on the offensive right away because he's clearly working through Cain, whether that be spiritually working through Cain, whether Cain is truly 100% human and he just is open to an attack by the enemy and the enemy is able to demonically work through him to kill Abel, or whether Cain really is a hybrid seed and he genetically is predisposed to being like his father and therefore is going to be a liar and jealous and envious and, and want to kill Cain, you know, that's, that's obviously debatable. But either way, the enemy is working through Cain to kill Abel immediately. And, but however, God is going to replenish the seed because he's going to recompense Adam and Eve with another seed line by the name of Seth. And that's what Seth means to compensate or to recompense. And, and Cain is exiled for, for his uh, improprieties. He is kicked out of the garden and uh, he's also marked. And I don't believe this is a mark with the Holy Spirit, but he's marked in such a way that I think would be very synonymous with the mark of the beast in the last days, that it's an evil mark placed upon him so that the rest of the world will recognize who he is they'll, and also so that they will not kill him because, um, you know, he, him and his posterity need to survive going forward. So if, if, uh, if God is going to replenish the seed, Seth, and Cain's not there to kill Seth, then Satan's going to have to come up with a new plan. And what better way than to try and actually contaminate the entire human genome? And so this takes us to Genesis 6. He's going to get the fallen angels to make an agreement. And they descend upon Mount Hermon. And they enter into flesh bodies. And um, they take on the women. And many of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other non-canonical versions actually make it more clear that they went after the daughters of Cain. Um, there was something special about Cain and his seed and those women. And I believe that they were a more promiscuous um, type of people as opposed to the Sethites who come from Adam and Eve and Seth who give birth to all of the ten patriarchs, Methuselah and Lamech and Enoch who was righteous and Noah, who was righteous. And so 
we're going to see that once these fallen angels begin to mate with the daughters of Cain, this is where we really see an exploitation of this hybrid DNA in such a way that it produces the giants, the Nephilim. And of course, we know that this is what triggers the flood and so on and so forth. So essentially, Satan and the fallen angels, their desire is to interbreed with humans in order to contaminate the human genome and mar the image of God. If they could do this, then maybe they could corrupt the seed of the woman to such a point that they could disrupt the coming of the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come and crush their heads. Now, the other thing we have to keep in mind is it isn't going to be so easy because even though the Messiah is going to come and crush their head, they're also going to bruise his heel, meaning that there is a price that he is going to have to pay that he's not going to get out of this unblemished, that something is going to happen to, to this one. And of course, now on the backside of the cross, we understand the Proto-Evangelium. We know that Jesus came. We know that God incarnated himself in, as a man and that Jesus is truly the God-man. He's 100% man and has the nature and virtues of a man as, as far as you know our a soul and he gets older and he he can suffer pain and he has all he he experiences all the experiences of a human being but yet he is the full incarnation of god in the flesh and so he's perfectly god and perfectly man and that's hard for us to wrap our hands around and you can't intellectually understand that it's supernatural it's either something that you receive on faith and you build upon that or you do not. But trying to completely understand the mechanism of action of that is, is very difficult. And I do have some future lectures that are going to try and at least make the attempt of looking at the mechanism of action. You know, I believe that the, uh, the fallen sinful nature of, of humans is passed through the male's C, uh, DNA and that the, the death uh, gene is passed through the female, that, that the law of sin and death entered in. I believe the law of sin came through, comes through Adam and through every male chromosome that's passed down, and the law of death came through the woman. And we'll, we'll get into that in another time because that's a whole other rabbit trail. But for now, just trying to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelium. Jesus did fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies and the Psalms. And he did come to redeem humanity by going to the cross. And when he did that, he disarmed Satan. Satan, at that point in time, had the power of sin and death. But Jesus disarmed him openly. And he regain the power of sin and death and he now has the keys to sin and death and all those who receive him as their christ and messiah are filled with his holy spirit and given the power to overcome sin and death hallelujah and amen to that but in the process he had to pay the ultimate price he had to go to the tree he had to you know, not only did he suffer greatly even before the crucifixion with, with um, 
being ridiculed and mocked and spat upon and, and so on and so forth. But then the crucifixion was the ultimate display of public brutality and humiliation. And considering that he took all of our sin, there's a pretty heavy price for sin. I mean, if you just took all of my sins and your sins since we were born till now, that's a lot of sin to have to carry. But to have to carry every human being's sin from the beginning, from Adam to the last human standing, to take the full grand sum total of the world's sin on your back, that's a big price to have to carry. And that's why the scripture says that God made Jesus drink the cup of indignation, the, the cup of wrath, full strength, no dilution. It wasn't a half a cup. It wasn't a cup that was diluted with a little water so you could choke it down a little easier. It was the full cup of wrath, of indignation that Jesus had to drink. And he did drink it because he went to the cross and he suffered the ultimate death. And then his final words were, it is finished, which also translates as paid in full. Jesus paid the price and thank God for it. And so that, in essence, is the Proto-Evangelium. Now, we have to understand there are two seed lines on this planet. And there's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we're, we're going to try and look at those seed lines literally. I know a lot of people want to spiritualize that, and that's fine. Um, if, if, that's, if that's where you're at with it and you want to spiritualize it, then you can just stick with that. But I've decided to take it a step further. I believe that the seed lines are literal. I believe that we're dealing with DNA and genetics. And I believe that the Bible will reflect that through these different genealogical groups. And so going forward, we're going to look at these people groups in the Old Testament through a biblical lens and through the lens of the proto-evangelium of there being different bloodlines, those which are 100% of the Adamic race and those who are not 100% of the Adamic race. They have hybridized blood. They do have some human blood. And so they're very human-like, but they're not fully human because they also have some fallen DNA as well. And that's also hard for us to put our hands around but nonetheless, that's what the Bible teaches. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after the flood, when the sons of daughters came into the when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And that's why we see all of the stories of those Old Testament giants. Now, those Old Testament giants were eventually wiped out by Joshua and many other of the patriarchs. But those bloodlines continued to permeate throughout human civilization. And even though the genetics did not express giants anymore, we still see wicked genealogies of people groups that go on to exist. So having said all that, now we can move on with the study. And this study is going to involve the the patriarchs. We've always heard of the, the fathers of the faith. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, Jacob, later, his name is changed to Israel, and he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. And so these are the fathers of the Hebrew faith, 
And there's some really unusual stories involving them that involve these two seed lines, specifically Jacob and Esau. And that's where we're going to concentrate our efforts going forward. Now, some of the goals of the next couple lectures are to really just peel the layers regarding Jacob and Esau, exactly who they were, how they grew up, what they were like. Then we're going to take a look at their families and see the stark contrast to their families. Now, I'll just go ahead and, and say up front, and, and of course, you know, everything, it seems like everything that I say and do anymore is controversial, and that's true, it is. And this is no exception. I'm going to go ahead and say up front that I believe that Jacob represents the seed of the woman and Esau represents the seed of the serpent. And I'll tell you right now, that is a very controversial statement to make because they both come from the same womb. And so trying to prove that is uh, no easy feat. In fact, now, you know, that, that the, the, the pressure and the burden is on me to actually substantiate that statement. But I think as time goes on, we'll see that there's something clearly different genetically, morally, and even based on their character, their demeanor, their actions, their attitudes, it's 100% it's different. And the only um, conclusion that we can draw from this is that they represent the two seed lines. And we'll see as we study which way they go, that Jacob's seed line gives birth to Israel, the holy seed, and Esau's seed line gives birth to the Amalekites, which are clearly an unholy seed. And in fact, I believe we'll also be able to demonstrate that, that they give rise to the red-haired giants, which will be an interesting study. And we're going to do our best to look at the mechanism of this, try to understand the physiology of it, both biblically and genetically speaking. So let's pick it up with Genesis 25, verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, and she's the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She couldn't have children. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, there's a couple details here we need to take a look at. Number one, you're going to find out pretty much with just about all of the patriarchs, that all of their wives are barren, every single one of them. They can't have kids until God decides they can have kids. And I think that there's multiple reasons for that. We need to understand that God has a heavenly calendar, a heavenly timeline, and everything has to be fulfilled regarding that timeline. Even the birth of Jesus, even his coming, is exactly specific and so if God just allowed the patriarchs to get pregnant whenever they wanted and have kids whenever they wanted it wouldn't be exactly according to a specific calendar and timeline so he just closes their wombs and then when it's prophetically time for the next one to come along 
they 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 seek the Lord and pray, and they ask the Lord to open their womb, and then boom, the Lord opens their womb and they conceive. And we see this with Abraham and Sarah. If you recall from the Bible, Abraham and Sarah were old. I think they were pushing a hundred years old when um, when the angels came to Abraham and said, "Hey, next year, Sarah's gonna have a baby." And of course, the story goes that Sarah, who was in her tent, she overheard this. She laughed because she she knew that that was ridiculous. She's a hundred-year-old woman. Her her womb is you know closed off at this point. And the angel said, "Hey, why did you laugh? Do you doubt God's power?" And that's how Isaac became named Isaac because Isaac means laughter. And so. Now Isaac, we're looking at a story here now where Isaac is 40 years old. And surely he knows about his history. He knows that God chose Abraham to be the patriarch. God promised Abraham that through his seed, there would be many great nations. And Isaac also knows that Abraham and his wife were barren and that he was the product of a supernatural impregnation of Sarah at an old age. So now it's his turn. He's going to entreat the Lord for his wife and say, Hey, Lord, you know, you said that we were going to have a seed line pass through Abraham, and I haven't had any children. I'm 40. My wife isn't able to get pregnant. You know, can you help us out here? And sure enough, boom, she conceives and gets pregnant. Verse 22, and the children struggled within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, a couple things. We have to understand, she doesn't know that she's got twins in the womb. The text here says that the children struggled inside of her. And so we know, we know that, but Rebecca did not know that she had twins in her belly. She just knew that she was having one hell of a pregnancy and that it was rough and something didn't seem right. And she was going to go to the Lord and seek the Lord and figure out what's going on. And uh, as we'll find out here in a moment, when we look at this account in the book of Jasher, she goes to Abraham and some of the patriarchs and says, Will you please seek the Lord and figure out what's going on? And they do. And eventually they come back and they say, well, now we know why you're having such a hard time, Rebecca. As it stands, you've got two different babies in your belly. Two nations are in thy womb and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other and the elder shall serve the younger. So this is a very important prophecy that Rebecca has now received regarding her pregnancy. So she's, she's basically being told that there are two children in her womb and this word struggled together. That actually means to crush one another, to oppress each other, to discourage or to try and dash into pieces and to treat violently. So it becomes very apparent within the text that these boys in the womb are not pals. They totally oppose one another 
and are at enmity with each other, just like the Proto-Evangelium says. And I've, I've included some imagery here on the right. And, you know, we discussed this before in Seed Wars number nine. I believe that Cain and Abel were also at enmity with each other. They were also twins. And I believe that they were probably not facing each other like we see down here in the bottom right. We know from ultrasound techniques today that many twins will often be holding each other and comforting each other. And here, like we see in the image, these are called the kissing twins. But when you're at odds with someone, even though you're not a fully developed person, you're, you're a baby in utero, you still have emotions and feelings and you're still quite aware that there's somebody else in here with you and you don't like them. And so either you're going to have your back turned to them or you're going to be in the opposite fashion of them like we see in this image above. And I believe this represents the law of reversal, the as above, so below philosophy of dualism right there that there's one good and there's one bad and we see that in the bible multiple times we see that in the proto-evangelium that there's one good seed and there's one bad seed we see that in the crucifixion that there's one criminal on on the right who confesses christ and there's one criminal on the left who rejects christ and they represent these two types of people throughout humanity those who believe and those who reject and and so I believe that that's what we're looking at again here with Jacob and Esau. Jacob represents the good seed that would one day become the holy seed. And Esau represents the wicked seed that would one day become the enemies of Israel. Now, if you look at the prophecy, there's some interesting details that we're going to see here. Two nations are in thy womb. The word nation is goyim. It means two people groups, two tribesmen, two kinsmen. It clearly denotes a difference in these people, that, that they're to two totally different nation states that are going to be developed as a consequence of these two children. And that's why it goes on to say that they are two manner of people, two, two dispositions of people, two characters. Two, they're, they're not the same. And they shall be separated from thy bowels. And that's an interesting phrase, to be separated from thy bowels. What I believe that really denotes is that we're dealing with two different yoke sacks. That there is a separation in the bowels between these fetuses which would imply that they are not identical twins. They are not uh, heterozygotic identical twins who share the same DNA but rather they are fraternal twins and there are different there are different DNA things going on yes they come from the same parents but there's a lot of DNA going back to their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and we're going to look at that here in, in, in a nearby lecture. But what the text is trying to identify is it's going out of its way to reveal the fact that these are two different nations, two different manner of people who've been separated by thy bowels. Those words etymologically 
insinuate that they're each in their own yolk sac and that they do not have identical DNA. If they don't have identical DNA, that's the same way as saying they have different DNA. And we're, we're going to expand on that here shortly. But the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. This is Esau, the elder. He's going to be stronger than Jacob, but his, his, his people are going to end up serving the younger. They're, they're going to be underneath the Israelites. And that's what we see happen. We see that the Amalekites are a very powerful, strong group of a nation. And every time they're mentioned in the Old Testament, they're usually thrown in with the Amorites and the Canaanites and all of the other Nephilim strains. But ultimately, they end up serving the younger or they end up having to be submissive to the other. Verse 24, And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in the womb. Okay, now I want to take a look at the book of Jasher. Um, the book of Jasher and the book of Jubilees will be two accounts that we'll be looking at uh, over the next couple weeks. Um, they're not considered part of the canon of scripture, but they have been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most uh, paleographic authors date them back to minus 200, minus 300 BC, and they give extra details that may help shed some light. There are some errors within those texts, but that you, instead of looking at them as inspired um, by God, like the like the like the Gospels, like the, the the canon of Bible, we can look at them more like historical records, kind of like Josephus. You know, Josephus wrote the the Antiquities of the Jews, and we those are valuable texts. They're they're not they're not Holy Spirit inspired per se like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they are, we have all kinds of historical records that exist that are helpful for discerning the, the times. And that's what the book of Jasher is. So this is what Jasher had to say. And the Lord heard the prayer of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And in about seven months, the children struggled within her. Now, that's pretty reasonable. That's about the time that these babies are starting to get big and, you know, they're, they're starting to fight within the womb. And it pained her greatly that she was wearied on account of these babies. And she said to all the women who are in the land, did such a thing happen to you as it's happening to me? And they all said to her, no. And she said to them, well, why am I alone? in this amongst all the women that are on the earth. In other words, why is my pregnancy so much harder than all of your pregnancies? Now, keep in mind at this point, she doesn't know that she's got twins and neither do any of these other women that she's asking. That knowledge hasn't been revealed yet. They didn't have the luxury of going in and getting an ultrasound back then. But from there, verse 10, she says, why am I alone in all this? And she asked Abraham to seek and inquire of the Lord. And all of the patriarchs inquired of the Lord concerning this matter. And then they brought her word from the Lord. This is how it worked back then. They sought out the Lord in prayer and time. And then God brought them the word. Thus says the Lord. 
They were all, they all had the gift of prophecy. They were all prophetic in nature. And so they brought Isaac and Rebekah the prophetic word. And this is the word. Two children are in thy womb, Rebekah. And when she heard that, she must have said, oh, okay, well, no wonder. And then to, to go on even further and to clarify, they're two different nations, two different people are going to rise from them. And they're two different manner of people. And one's going to be stronger than the other. And the elder is going to serve the younger. In other words, they're, they're, not, they're going to be at odds with each other. And the reason why you're experiencing so much pain in the womb is because these babies are at enmity with each other. They don't like each other and they're going to end up being two different groups of people. And that is what God's will is for these babies. And we're going to look at that later when we get into the lecture about predestination. That God supernaturally was there in the secret place when he stitched these babies together in the womb and he teased out the DNA and he made sure that Jacob was going to be the seed of the woman and Esau was going to be the seed of the serpent. And that was a matter of election and predestination. And that's difficult for people to grasp. But just hold that thought because that lecture will come and we will try and unpack that as, as much as we can within our human understanding. Continuing on, Genesis 25, verse 25. And the first boy came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau, which means hairy. And after that came his brother and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them. So, we see here that Jacob tries to grab Esau's heel as he's coming out. This is just a demonstration of how these boys were. That there was a competition going on. Jacob wanted to come out first. Jacob wanted to win this battle of the womb and he wanted to be the firstborn son so much to the point that he actually grabbed Esau's heel to try to try and thwart his birth now you know that the word uh, that means to supplant that's what the word Jacob means to the supplanter he tried to supplant Esau from coming out of the womb and he tried to dominate him by coming out first and so this is just, again, further um, clarification that these boys are not friends. They're not going to be pals growing up, that they are in, at odds and at enmity and at strife with each other from the moment they were conceived going forward. And we see right away that they're vastly different looking. And later we're going to find out in the, in the scriptures, in the Bible, that Jacob is a smooth man. He's, he doesn't have any hair, but Esau is, looks like a red, hairy garment. And most people, when they picture Esau, they just, they kind of picture just a regular looking everyday human being with just like some extra hair on his arms. But when we get into the, the text moving forward, we're going to find out that that's not the case. Esau was completely covered in hair from head to toe. And I suspect he looked a lot like this little baby right here. A red, 
hairy garment. That was what Esau looked like. And verse 27, and as the boys grew, Esau was a cunning hunter and a man of the field, whereas Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, there's a lot of details here that we need to look at. To be a cunning hunter means to be crafty, to be knowledgeable. It's someone who goes out and learns through experience. And to be a hunter means to be a, a killer, right? He, he's learned how to kill and how to provide food for the family. The way that Esau puts food on the table is he goes out and he kills it. Whereas, and then it, when it says that he's a man of the field, that means that he is a man who is out there with the wild beasts. That's what a man of the field is. It's a man who, he's not a very learned man. He's not a very educated man. He's, he doesn't read and write. He's not, um, there's not a lot of manners here. He is a wild man. He's a hairy, wild man man who's a hunter and a killer and he's used to sleeping out underneath the stars and um you know he's used to tracking these animals and he has been out amongst the wild beasts so that's the picture that we're getting of esau a very primitive type man whereas jacob is entirely different to be a plain man means to be an undefiled man it also means to be a morally righteous man, which is in stark contrast of Esau. As we'll learn going on, Esau has wicked motivations. Esau has uh, unrighteousness within him. But Jacob is a plain man, undefiled. He's also known as an upright man. Now, whether this is a moral uprightness or whether he actually stands upright and Esau is more of a hunched over man, it's difficult to say, although I suspect that Esau may be more of a hunched over type man compared to Jacob physically. And then dwelling in tents is a very specific characteristic that we always see of the seed of the woman. They are tent dwellers. And this takes on a very important connotation because as the ancient oral rabbis taught throughout the, the rabbinic traditions, the tent is where you went to school. This is where you were educated on the law of Moses. This is where you were educated on the Torah. Um, when, those who spend time in tents are men who are becoming learned, educated men who are learning the law. And um, so Esau, um, uh, uh, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob was a man who dwelled in tents, just like Abraham was a man who dwelled in tents. And we see a lot of tent dwellers going all the way back. We're also going to learn that um, Jacob was a, a, a herdsman. He had flocks of animals that he cared for. He tended to the flocks. And this is how he uh, developed his food, was through farming and also through animals. Whereas Esau showed no interest in as being a herdsman. He wanted to go out and hunt he was a raw, you know, he wanted to, to, to take the, the spoils of what the land had to offer. So we see that these men are very different. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. 
but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, there's a couple important details there as well. Um, number one, it points to the fact that there was venison, right? This, this is They're trying to delineate that Esau's not the kind of guy who's going to raise sheep and cattle and butcher those animals and eat them. But he provides venison on the table and rabbit and other wild animals because he's a man of the field. And notice that Isaac loves Esau because he did eat of his venison. We're going to see later in the text that it makes it clear a second time that one of the reasons why Isaac loved Esau so much is because of the food that he provided. That, you know, we've all heard this, this idea that you can win over a man's heart through his stomach. That Isaac was probably used to eating all of the typical thing that all of the Israelites ate, but Esau was different. Esau went out and he slayed all of the different wild animals and he procured all of the different wild meats and he was able to appease uh, Isaac in a very unique way with his stomach. And also it's kind of like in today's world, it's kind of like the father who you know, wants his son to be the football player and, and maybe instead his son is more into the arts and he's into music and he plays the piano and, and things like that. And, 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 then, and then later he has another child who ends up being, you know, a, a basketball and soccer star. And he's, the dad is living out his youth through the son who's a man's man, who's, you know, rough and tough and plays sports. It's kind of like that. Isaac loves Esau because he's a rough, tough, can get the job done, goes out, sleeps, you know, with the animals, kills them, brings them home and cooks them. He's that kind of guy. Whereas Rebecca loves Jacob because Jacob is a sensitive, undefiled, upright, morally conscionable man. And so the feeling that we're left with is that not only do these two boys look entirely different, but they act entirely different. Their mannerisms are entirely different. And as we're going to see going forward, their desires are entirely different. Now, if we take a look at what Jasher has to say, we'll see a lot of similarities with a couple of additional details. Verse 13, and when her days to be delivered were completed, Rebecca knelt down and behold, there were twins in the womb as the Lord had spoken to her. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And all the people of the land called him Esau, saying that this was one made complete from the womb. And after that came his brother, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. Therefore they called his name Jacob. So we see that that's almost identical to the King James Version. And Isaac, the son of Abraham, was 60 years old when he begat them. And the boys grew up to their 15th year, and then they came amongst the society of men. Esau was a designing and deceitful man, and an expert hunter in the field. And Jacob was a man perfect and wise, dwelling in tents, feeding flocks, and learning the instructions of the Lord and the commands of his father and mother. So we see here in Jasher, according to the ancient oral rabbinic traditions of history, that they're documenting pretty much what the Torah had to say about their birth. The 
twins were born. One came out like a hairy garment and the other did not. And then they tell us that as the boys grew up, somewhere around their 15th birthday, they became introduced into the society of men. They're, they're now being sort of introduced into the culture of, you know, the, the Hebrews. And, and at that time, Esau was a designing man. That word designing means crafty. He, he is a cunning and crafty man. And notice also that he is a deceitful man. We obviously know what that means. It means he's manipulative. He's a, he's a liar and a deceiver. And that he's an expert hunter in the field. And we can't help but notice some of the similarities with him as other uh, people of a wicked strain. We know that Nimrod was an expert hunter in the field. And he was the first rebellious king of Babylon after the flood. Even before the flood, uh, men like Cain and Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain became an excellent hunter, and, and he's the one who really uh, perfected the use of weapons. So you see some similarities uh, going all the way back. Whereas Jacob was totally opposite. He was a man perfect and wise. Uh, he was a learned man who dwelled in tents. Now, as I mentioned before, the tents are where you receive the education, and that was all typology for the future tabernacle that the nation of Israel would be instructed to design. Moses was given a pattern of the tabernacle up on the mountain on Sinai, and that tabernacle would later become the, the Holy of Holies where, where God would commune with man. So, we see that God is already working in the seed of the woman to become tent dwellers and to draw closer to the written and oral word of God. And so that's what makes Jacob a perfect and wise man dwelling in tents. And then feeding flocks is uh, something that we see going all the way back to the seed of the woman, even as far back as Abel. We know that Abel was a herdsman and that he offered uh, the most choice of his flocks as an appropriate sacrifice to God. So there's some continuity on, in that as well. And then lastly, we're told that Jacob is a man who's learning the instructions of the Lord and the commands of his mother and father. And so we're seeing some of the Ten Commandments play out. This is well before the Exodus. This is well before, you know, remember the Hebrews spent 400 years in Egypt before they were liberated and taken to Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments. And this is hundreds of years before they even went to Egypt. So we're talking maybe close to a millennia before the, the Ten Commandments have been given. Does that mean that they were living in a lawless world? No. There was an oral tradition that was passed down throughout the seed of the woman the instructions of the Lord. They spent time in the tents dwelling and learning about God and, and understanding and obeying their mother and their father and all of the other Ten Commandments. And then all of that oral Torah eventually got written down on the stone tablets much later. So we're moving into the end of the lecture, and I want to wrap it up with a small excerpt from the Book of Jubilees. In the second year thereof, Rebekah bare to Isaac two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was a smooth and upright man, 
and Esau was a fierce man of the field, and hairy, and Jacob dwelled in tents. What's interesting here is that traditionally, the eldest son, his name comes first. It should be that Rebekah bore Isaac two sons, Esau and Jacob. But notice that we see a reversal, and that's for several reasons. Number one, we learn later in the story, which we will review in a, in a near lecture, that Esau sells his birthright for his stomach. And Jacob ends up getting the birthright. Well, the birthright is something that goes to the eldest son. And since there's a transfer of the birthright from Esau to Jacob, now technically speaking, Jacob is viewed as the oldest son because he has the birthright. And then just in addition to that, I believe that he comes first as well because the prophecy says that the older will serve the younger. And we know Jacob is the father of the Israelites and the seed of the woman. And so he's given preeminence in the scripture. We also see here this other confirmation that Jacob was a smooth and upright man. Those are physical qualities that he was not a hairy man and he was not a bent over man. He was a tall, stood up straight with good posture, smooth, intelligent man. Whereas Esau was fierce. That word means dangerous, destructive, a man of the field and hairy. Whereas Jacob dwelt in tents. Verse 14. And as the youths grew, Jacob learned to write, but Esau did not learn, for he was a man of the field and a hunter, and he learned war, and all of his deeds were fierce. And so again, we see that there's a, a moment in time here where these boys have to decide which way they're going to go. And just like our own children that we'll observe you know, you may have a child who's really into science and math and another child who's really into art and drawing and things like that. And they just have certain characters, certain dispositions. And it's clear that Jacob uh, wanted to become an educated man who would dwell in tents and a very sophisticated man who owned animals, whereas Esau wanted nothing to do with any of that. He was a fierce, rough, hairy man who was a wild man who spent his time out in the forest hunting and killing and living off the land. And then lastly, we'll just note that according to the oral Targums, which is the oral rabbinic traditions, the tents were translated as the original academies. This is where the uh, seat of the woman, where the Hebrews would truly learn uh, their, their, the Torah. Um, Jacob is represented as a lifelong student of the Torah, where he would fulfill that by learning in the academies of the tents. Or you could think of them as the first original schools, if you will. And so to summarize and, and wrap up this lecture, we see some very distinct differences between Jacob and Esau, both physically and also according to the, their mannerisms 
their character, their personality, their desires, and even, even their moral compass. We see that Jacob is a plain and upright man. He walks tall, proud, and upright with his shoulders back. He's a righteous man who has a good moral compass and a, and a good conscience. He dwells in tents where he becomes perfect and wise and learns the instruction of the Lord. And um, he's a smooth man. He's, you know, he's not hairy and he's clean cut, so to speak. That's what we would use in today's vernacular. Kind of a clean cut young man. And he, he's a, a, a herdsman, just like all of his predecessors all the way back to Abel. Whereas Esau is a whole different animal, no pun intended. He is a very primitive man. He doesn't have any desire to learn uh, the, the ways of a righteous man. He's more of a hunched over, as we see in this bottom left image. He's kind of a hunched over man, very hairy, um, a man of the field. He's deceitful. He's crafty. He's manipulative. Um, he's someone who learns through experience and he's mastered the art of war and weapons and killing. And he becomes an expert hunter. And so, you know, it's obvious that these boys differ in both appearance and character. And that strongly suggests a difference in their genetics. It'd be one thing if they both came out looking the same, but they had two different dispositions. But the scripture is clearly going out of its way to make it clear that not only are they different morally and their characters are different, but there's a radical difference physically. And that can only be explained by one thing, and that is that they have some different genetics that are being expressed, which means that their parents have multiple different autosomal dominant and recessive genetic traits flowing through their blood and as we're going to see in an upcoming lecture god supernaturally chose which genes would be expressed in both boys and he chose the seed of the woman the genetics of the adamic race to be expressed in jacob and he purposefully chose the opposite seed the serpent seed to be expressed in esau and so as we're going to learn in the next couple of lectures esau is really almost like a, a neanderthal type man he's covered in hair he's bent over he is not a learned man and he he may very well be some of the origins of the neanderthal type men that we are all familiar with you know today they try and push this paradigm that of the darwinian evolutionary paradigm that every man was originally a primitive bent over you know hunter gatherer but here we're seeing in the scripture that we may have a different uh, explainable source for that man. And that may be Esau and the Edomites who come from him and eventually the Amalekites who we're going to see later end up mixing with the Horims, which are a giant Nephilim strain. And, and that's going to be a, another interesting lecture. But that pretty much wraps it up for this lecture. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, may the Lord be with you. Godspeed, and we will see you on the next one.